When America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. We've all probably heard that saying, or at least a variant of it. In beer, it's no secret that many US brewers appreciated and were often inspired by classic British styles. And in turn, many brewers in the UK, Europe and beyond have been galvanised by the wealth of creations to emerge from modern US brewing. One such outfit operating in that landscape is Finback. Founded in 2011, Finback Brewery is born from a passion for brewing and experimentation. After a long search combing through back streets, along canals, under bridges and industrial no-man's lands, the team found a space in Queens in 2013. Finback would go on to release its first beers brewed in Queens in January 2014, and the brewery is proud to call Queens home being part of the diverse and rich culture of the borough. Basil Lee is the co-founder of Finback, a business that continues to brew exceptional beers through iteration and rotation, deploying a variety of hops, ingredients and techniques as a creative journey in bringing unique beers to the consumer. With a previous career in design, Basil brought strong training in process and collaboration in building Finback as an engaging beer experience. With that in mind, we invited Basil to deliver the keynote address at our 2023 Brewers' Congress. In this episode, Basil discusses how the industry has evolved in the decade Finback has been in business. He looks at the way consumer tastes have changed and why 10 years in, he feels that much of beer and brewing is now about going back to basics. And for the full unabridged version of Basil's talk, please make sure to check out the spring edition of the Brewers' Journal landing early in the new year. We hope you enjoy. Thank you. Um, so it all started you know, like all other stories, many other stories, a couple of passionate drinkers, passionate home brewers, learning about beer. Um, and we decided we wanted to open a brewery. So 2011, we set out to open a brewery. And at that time, there were 1,300 breweries in the US. Uh, we thought we'd be open within a year. And two and a half years later, when we actually did open, there were 2,000 breweries in the US. And this is already, mind you, you know, before 2011, I think we went from 700 to 1,300 breweries in a couple of years. So I thought we'd missed the boat. Actually, I thought the craft beer thing was done. Um, but looking back, it was kind of interesting. In retrospect, I think that was the beginning of the golden age of kind of this wave of craft beer. Uh, and I kind of like to think of it as, as uh, the wave, the, the, the era of hazy beer. And so I would, thought I would talk a little bit about that and kind of uh, use that as a kind of uh, story arc to, to tell our story a bit. So here we go. I think um, this is kind of my version, my little anecdotal history, uh, brief history of hazy beer, hazy IPAs. <clears throat> I think, um, especially back then, hazies were pretty controversial. I think that uh, there's always this kind of sense uh, from brewers, from drinkers, you know, kind of love-hate relationship with hazy beer. Um, there's kind of, you know, even now, I think, ordering things, you know, people have this kind of uh, tendency to want to shit on hazy beers. Uh, I think it's kind of a fun thing to do. I think people uh, generally uh, kind of 
elicits a lot of uh, uh, emotions and things like that. <clears throat> but I think also, uh, for whatever reason, whether it was the cause of or the result of, uh, Universe was aligned, and hazy beers, I think, really changed the market. I think it radically uh, kind of brought new people and excitement to the market, and I think uh, it really changed where we are. So I'd like to talk about where it all began. So Kevin and myself are both from New England. Uh, I'm from Rhode Island. Kevin's from Boston. And at the time, there were some pretty cool breweries in New England uh, in that area. Um, lots, lots of stuff happening. But West Coast was still dominating. West Coast breweries, West Coast IPA was dominating. Uh, there was a brewery in Boston called Harpoon. And at that time, it was pretty mass market regional craft brewery. Their core beer was a Harpoon IPA. And it was a British IPA. It was pretty amber, not really as hoppy as, as we like to think of beers now. But it was definitely something different. Um, but really, I think West Coast IPAs were where it was at. And, uh, and, and it was uh, kind of a race for, for bitterness. And I think that's what kind of defined American craft beer. But in 20, 2003, The Alchemist opened uh, in Waterbury, Vermont. And, uh, and I kind of trace that as the beginning of this wave. Um, and so Hetty Topper, I think, is probably one of the beers that really started all of this. Um, and I thought it was kind of interesting you know, back then to look at this. You know, if you look at the Hetty Topper can, from the beginning it says drink from the can. Um, and I think clearly maybe they had a couple of reasons for that. Um, but one was that if you poured it into a glass, it didn't look right. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, in some ways, they kind of, it was like a little hedge. It was kind of a pejorative, right? I think at that time, hazy beers were still considered as a, as a brewing flaw in some ways. Uh, they weren't supposed to look like that. You know, there were things that were in the beer uh, that were possibly floating and, and things like that. Um, and so that was kind of like a no-no. And I think, you know, at the time, actually, I, I had a conversation with a friend who was a brewer at Harpoon at that time. And he certainly was against this. You know, he said that it was just, it's laziness, it's not filtering, it's bad process, all these things. And I think that's, that was a lot of the sentiment back then. Um, but I think this is where it all kind of kicked off. And it would be another 12 years, I think, before Hazy's really became a thing. And not until 2018, actually, was it even recognized as a category by the Brewers Association. So obviously, I kind of chose, this is actually a picture of Hattie Topper, and I think I was strategic you know, choosing, <laughs> choosing this picture. It doesn't always look like this. Um, <clears throat> but I think that uh, you know, what they were going for at the time was to do something different. Right? I think that they were looking at hoppy beers in a different way. It wasn't just about alpha and IBUs and bitterness. Uh, they were really looking for a kind of new experience. You know, they, they kind of say like layers of hops and you know, this kind of experience of, of balance and drinkability. Um, and so that was really, really interesting. And uh, yeah, I think that kind of kicked off kind of this whole, this whole thing. I think from, from Hetty Topper in 2003, you go, there's Lawson, Sip of Sunshine, and then ultimately the opening of Hill Farmstead in 2010. And so I think that all kind of um, is what started this kind, of, this kind of wave. So I wanted to make a little timeline uh, to show you this. Obviously, just chose a couple of, of the kind of big regional players, as well as some people we know and some friends. 
Um, I think it's, it's kind of interesting. This year, by the way, is the 20th anniversary of Hetty Topper. So uh, I think that's pretty interesting. And so they opened in 2003. I will point out, 10 years later, in 2013, was another pretty significant wave of breweries opening. So I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, we opened in 2013. Um, but I think um, it's interesting to, to look at this and, and kind of see the progression of craft beer in the US, right? I think that you have, from the very early days of Anchor and Sierra kind of making beers in, in, in California, all the way through to essentially the beginning of New England IPA. Um, I think there was a lot of things that happened, obviously, a lot of transformations. But hazy beers and this kind of push in, in, in the kind of mid-2000s was like a, a, a big shift and really changed things. And so that, I thought I would talk a little bit about that. <clears throat> so the term hazy, you know, I think in the beginning when we opened, it wasn't even a thing. We didn't call our beers hazy at the time. Um, it, it, it wasn't something that necessarily defined a style per se. Um, but there definitely was this East Coast, West Coast thing that was happening. And I think that like, from a rivalry standpoint, it's kind of a, a fun thing, and it kind of pushes people to improve. I think for us, we very much wanted to do something different you know, for us collectively, I think, in the Northeast. Um, and I remember <clears throat> at the time as, as this kind of style, as the kind of craft beer movement, uh, the early days of that wave were kind of moving forward, um, and the style was getting a little popular. I remember going to a festival in California, um, talking on panels, and there was a lot of hate for ha hazy beers. It was actually a lot of, I think, a lot of uh, hate for us, but also self-hate. I think that the West Coast breweries also saw that something was changing and that the market was changing. I think that they didn't want to brew hazy beers. They, they didn't think it was real. They didn't think it was a thing. They didn't think it was right. Uh, I think that they also felt maybe a little bit of this competitive uh, they were foreshadowing this change in market share, I think, maybe, and so that, that was kind of part of it. Um, but to me, I kind of think um, that's what also made it so powerful. I think that because it elicited this kind of reaction, I think it kind of allowed Hazy Beer to, in some ways, become a thing and really uh, had this coin, this term, Hazy, kind of was solidified then. So, you know, what does that mean? You know, like I said, in the beginning, we didn't really brew uh, hazy beers in terms of thinking about them that way. We were really just trying to brew, just like Hetty Topper or Hill Farmstead or whatever, beers that we thought tasted good and beers that were after a certain kind of effect. Um, and so I think, you know, and, and to give some, some of you here, which I think probably went through this same kind of process, but there was this kind of period in 14, 15, 16 where it was really about iterative um, development and kind of understanding and, and developing what hazy beers were. Um, I think we brewed beers that were hazy, that were not hazy, that were, you know, this color versus that color, that were um, very much ran the gamut in trying to find what, was, what, we, what we liked and what was working with the, with the, with the market. And I think very quickly, it kind of evolved into this, looking for this effect. So I think, you know, clearly for us, appearance was a big thing. You know, I think that beers were clear, bright, more amber, more dark, IPAs specifically, um, and we were infatuated with things that looked more yellow, more pale, um, in some ways a more neutral base for hops, um, and so we looked at that a lot and how we could achieve that. I think mouthfeel and haziness um, was really important, you know, for us. I think body and, and, and a kind of really... <clears throat> 
kind of clean base where hops, and specifically, I think, flavors in hops rather than bitterness from hops um, could, could shine. And just kind of listing a whole bunch of words. But I think you know, people are, have always, especially back then, it was so interesting you know, like what people were doing and how you were doing it, you know, when, you would re when you would dry hop, how you would dry hop, how long you would dry hop, whether you'd recirculate, what temperature. Um, and then all sorts of flaws. You know, I think there were times where hazy beers were super green. You know, it was too bitter. There were lots of you know, beyond hazy, just lots of, of muck in cans and things like that. Um, and so I think for us, it was this kind of period of, uh, of, of, of learning and trying to develop this style. And I think pretty quickly, though, um, it kind of uh, settled down into a, into a thing. Um, and, and so I wanted to talk a little bit you know, from there, I think, how it really took off. Um, so kind of three components that I think I wanted to, to separate it. One is the beer itself, you know, obviously. You know, I think that it, it, hazy beers look different. They look modern. They tasted different. So the color of the beer. So you can see going from a pretty amber kind of uh, IPA to something that became very, very yellow, I think had a very big difference in appearance. I think you can judge a cover by its book. Um, and the other thing is the format changed. I think changing to a can format was kind of revolutionary. And in some ways, I don't think it was, it was, it was super um, conscious of a decision. But I think cans look different. Having a label on a can, like a, a stickered label versus a printed can, looked different. Um, and, and, and I think the format had a lot to do with it. I think bottles, in a way, if you look at it, 22-ounce bombers, I'm sure many of you remember, were the thing uh, for a long time. 12-ounce bottles were the thing. Um, and they've, they've gone away. There are businesses in America, breweries in America, I think, that went out of business because they stayed with like a 22-ounce bottle format. So I think that's kind of interesting. Um, for us, you know, design was really important. So I think having a can that looked a certain way was really important. I had people multiple people, even recently, who have asked us um, whether we decided to go with our, our smaller kind of offset label because we couldn't afford a bigger label. Um, and I was pretty annoyed about that because we're, we're, very, we're very particular about our design. Although I will say that smaller labels are cheaper. <laughs> and we were pretty broke back then. Um, but the third thing is engagement. I think, you know, it's funny because I think Looking back at all this stuff, I feel like people, uh, you know, you kind of, you know, there's a lot to criticize, you know, it's like who the hell would wait in line, these idiots, to buy beer, it's kind of crazy. Um, but I think it was a really important piece of it, you know. Personally, I wouldn't wait in line for beers myself, but I think that it kind of solidified a community. It, it, got people got, it got people got excited. People would share beers in line. You would meet other people in line. And it became this kind of community. And I think that was really important. And in some ways, I feel like that was the first kind of way um, we kind of engaged this new group of, of, of people coming into the, into the, to, to beer. <clears throat> and kind of created a lot of excitement. And those are the people who really spread the word, I think, um, as well as kind of creating this taproom, um, this kind of taproom direct-to-consumer um, environment so that there was a real like bond and connection to I think your customers and and your local beer friends and then also um, I want to talk about Instagram so Instagram started in 2010 with 1 million users by 2013 it had 110 million users uh, which is the year we opened and a year later it added another hundred million users 
Um, there was a moment where someone came up to me at a beer festival. We had Twitter, we had Instagram, we had Facebook. This is probably in 13, 14. And they said, you should just get rid of all your social media because Instagram is going to take over. And he was completely right. Um, and I think Instagram changed everything. I think Instagram made, you know, <clears throat> obviously social media uh, made this stuff visible to people. Uh, I think that suddenly, <clears throat> I was at a beer festival in Asia around that time. And talking to some people, brewers, on their phones were beers that we were making or some of our peers were making. And you would see what people were brewing immediately. You know, as the beer was released, you'd see what it was. You'd see the picture of it. You'd see the caption and be like, oh, you know, it's 50% oats or whatever it is. You know, stupid stuff. And people were like, I'm going to make that beer tomorrow. And so very quickly, I think knowledge kind of moved around. And this kind of idea of what was exciting and new, you know, kind of spread pretty quickly. Um, and so I think, you know, within a couple of years, you know, these are all IPAs, um, I think, I don't know, but, um, and, and some of them from specific breweries, specific IPAs, um, but you can tell they're all kind of, you know, they look like delicious beers, but they're all relatively more amber, a little more dark, uh, a little brighter, and within two or three years, pretty much all IPAs look like this, um, and, and whether you like it or not, it, it happened. Um, and I think that it, it changed. I think that there was something that was kind of remarkable about it. I think that, you know, the visuals of it, the feeling of it, whatever it was, something changed, and, and this is kind of what happened. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. And so pretty quickly, you know, I think we entered the age of hazies, um, and, 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 and we had that for the past five years or so. And I think that uh, pretty quickly, like all breweries, whether people liked or not, were brewing hazies. West Coast breweries going back, I felt like, you know, they're like, you know, we still hate hazy beer, but we're doing it because we have to pay the rent. And I'm like, you know what? Exactly. You know, it's not, you know, not that big of a deal. You should just brew what people like and what tastes really good. Um, but I think, <clears throat> yeah, it was, a, it was a phenomenon. It was a really popular style. And I think as more breweries brewed them, there was also this idea of rotation, right? Because I think at the same time that this was happening, uh, hazies kind of talked about freshness in a way. I mean, I think that there was discussions about like when you should drink a hazy beer, and there was a window that was exactly like 14 to 19 days. That was like the perfect time to drink a hazy beer. And there was a moment where I think people actually did that. And so you would release a beer, you'd have to go buy it, drink it, and then wait for the next release next week. And so I think all of those things kind of contributed to this. And so suddenly you had all these breweries that were releasing 10 new beers or three new beers every single week. So the, the market just exploded kind of crazy. Um, and so from there, there was this question of like, where do we, where do we go? What do we do? Um, I think for us, through collaborations, through whatever it was, you know, there's only so much you can do. Uh, there's only so many permutations of Citra Mosaic and something else that you can, you can do, um, although there are a lot of permutations. Um, and I think there's this kind of moment where there were new hops, you know, hop breeding changed. I think, you know, I remember actually the first time I went to hop selection, before most of this, um, all the growers were kind of like coming through, they were coming out of this funk from the past decade in which their markets were crazy, they were all overproduced, they were all heavily uh, in debt, and, 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 and um, having a rough time. And then like five years later, I think I went back, they all had boats, you know, they, oh, their mortgages were paid off, their kids were going to college. It's pretty, pretty good. But um, 
and that kind of kicked off, I think, a lot of this new breeding and, you know, and, and, and finding new uh, varietals that were very tropical and had these kinds of effects. And I think I just, again, listing a bunch of things, just kind of these innovations. But I think... The Brewer's Journal podcast is a production of Reby Media, produced and hosted by Tim Sheehan, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young. The executive producer is Rory Harris. And special thanks to Basil Lee of Finback Brewery.